Hi there. Welcome to World Cup Coffee and Tea for another OMN Coffee Shop Conversation. I'm Tom D'Antoni, and with me today is author and former Oregonian film critic, Sean Levy. Sean's 2014 book, De Niro, A Life, was an exhaustive, revealing portrait. It was his eighth book. Others include Rat Pack and Paul Newman, A Life. We'll find out what he's working on next, if he misses the daily grind of reviewing movies, and how he found that topless photo of Sophia Loren for his next book. Is that tease enough for you to line up at the front door when it comes out in October? Maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but maybe not. It's our second year of Coffee Shop Conversations. More on the way. Let's talk to Sean Levy. How about it? Welcome to the cupping room. Ah, thank that's you. That's where we are. That's a uh, that's a coffee term. <laughs> I'm glad it's not to do with uh, me coughing and turning to the side. No. <laughs> hey, you know, you're the first guy who said that. <laughs> Is that right? Yes. Generally, it's like, uh, uh, you know, when you're lying in bed with somebody and you're behind them. or Spooning. Spooning, cupping. That's a kind of thing or Chinese medicine oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but that's good <laughs> I'll add that to the list of, of perverse versions of this whatever this room that's is. immediately jumped to mind I don't, I don't know what that tells you <laughs> um, did you write today I didn't write today but I organized the photos for an upcoming book Oh boy. Um, little known thing about the publishing business, you write nonfiction, the author is responsible for the wrangling and paying for the inside photos. So one of my skills generated over the years is finding cheap art for inside my books. <laughs> well, it's easier to find now than it used to be. Yes and no. Um, uh, in the old days, you had to physically go to an archive, but in the late 90s early aughts um, uh-huh. a couple of large archives Getty and Corbis yeah. bought up a lot of the physical archives yeah. and you can no longer visit them um, in fact they will charge you a research fee to send someone into their vaults um, so on the one hand stuff is digitized um, but on the other hand it's you have to go to one or two people who jacked up the prices exorbitantly oh man one one of our photographers uh, is hooked up with with Getty, and, and they, uh, he's, he likes that idea. Yeah, it's a, no, it's it's good for the photographers. And in this yeah. book, um, it's about the Dolce Vita years in Italy um, uh-huh. and the birth of the paparazzi. And I had to go to the estate of one of the most famous paparazzi to get images that he his son has very carefully gone around the world and withdrawn from archives oh. and uh, couldn't get a good deal from him this is this is his uh his dad's estate he's serious about it jeez wow so you know i, th- I think i managed to keep it under four grand well that's good yeah i'd rather have the four grand right, <laughs> you know, right. but but it's a you know the period that I'm talking about with the fashion and the cinema and yeah. the, the scandals on the Via Veneto and all this stuff, it's just crying out to be illustrated. So you have to, to do it. 
have to do it. Yeah, it's like it's like you putting out the book a book about swinging London and not having any any illustrations. Right, and in, that was I think the last book I wrote that I was able to go physically into any archive I wanted and like touch press photos from the period and say I want this can you digitize this I want this can you digitize this Um, I spent uh, you know I took many trips to London but one of them was dedicated to finding art and it paid for itself yeah 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 wow so what's what's the what's your favorite so far Favorite book? No, your favorite picture from this book, for this book. Oh my God! I have a picture of Sophia Loren topless at about age eighteen. Whoa! Uh, in a movie called um, uh, Two Nights with Cleopatra, she was in in the harem, and they did a uh, a French version of the film in which the actresses were allowed to appear uh, bare-breasted, and Sophia was was quite a specimen. She finished second in the 1950 uh, Miss Italia. Uh, pageant and I have a picture of her and the winner and you got to wonder whatever became of that gal who beat Sophia yes. Loren in a beauty pageant <laughs> um, but then I have an amazing picture of uh, Anita Ekberg in 1961 turning on the paparazzi standing oh. outside her villa with a bow and arrow oh, shooting at these guys <laughs> um, I have you know uh, amazing images from the set of La Dolce Vita and Eight and a Half. I have a wonderful image of a guy dressed as a Roman centurion riding a Vespa through the back lot at Chinichita. So, as I say, it it screams out for illustration. I'd love to do a photo book with captions and short chapters on the same subject. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So, do do you come down on one side or or another for or against the paparazzi? You know, in their in their original incarnation, they were kind of heroic. They were these young yeah. guys who'd grown up after the war. They were, you know, hey, mister, take a picture. You yes. know, when people didn't carry a, 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 a high-tech camera in their pocket. Yeah. Tourists and soldiers would be standing in front of the, uh, the Forum or the Trevi Fountain. And, you know, these kids worked for photographers and took their pictures. And then um, Italy was uh, very slow to adapt television. Adopt television. It came in in 54 or so. And in those in-between years when the rest of the world was eating up television, the primary visual medium in Italy was photo magazines uh, modeled after look and life. Uh And they were also scandal magazines, kind of ahead of the curve of confidential and whisper and hush-hush and on the QT in the United States. So these guys were, you know, proletariat, you know, street urchin kids um, taking advantage of the fact that Hollywood was making movies there, that there were these great fashion houses coming up, you know, Valentino, Simonetta, Fontana, Pucci, Uh and all these actresses and Brioni suits and all these actors were coming to Italy, and they were just, they called themselves, the the name paparazzi didn't come in until 1960. Prior to that, these guys called themselves assault photographers. (laughs) You gotta love that. Um, you know, when it became that first generation, yeah. they dressed well because they would work during the day yeah. shooting photos of the Vatican or of the government for legitimate newspapers. And at uh-huh. night, they made their real money chasing down celebrities. <laughs> I have this, these wonderful images of Walter Chiari, the Italian leading man, chasing a guy you know, <laughs> at night through these cobblestone streets. and It's very exciting. And, and these guys really invented an art form. Um, then it became something else. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
But they, as a group, those original two dozen guys, I have one paragraph in this book where I list all their names because yeah. they, they deserve to have their names yeah. gathered and enshrined. Yeah. So, but, you know, the paparazzi who chase, you know, Britney Spears around or yeah. uh, were involved in the car accident in Paris that killed Princess Diana, yeah. that's a different breed of people. Right. Remember Ron Galella? Oh, Ron Galella, you know, who took one of the great photos of <laughs> yeah. the 20th century, Jackie Onassis in yeah. the street with her hair tossed in the wind. That's the yeah. Mona Lisa of the photograph age. Yeah. You yeah. know, and yeah. uh, he, he following Marlon Brando around in a football helmet because Brando used to punch him. <laughs> in his way, he's, he's, he's the one guy. He's kind of a hinge. He reminds me of the original assault photographers, uh-huh. but he opened the door to the sort of uh-huh. gutter snipe uh, yes. period that yeah. we're now in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you never hear of any names. Any any uh, paparazzi names anymore? No no paparazzi stars anymore. No no no. And now yeah. it's just anyone with a phone in their pocket right. is a paparazzo, yeah. and you know yeah. whatever. I mean, yeah. these guys were really taking risks. You know, Tazio Secchiaroli, who's the mm-hmm. the prince of the Italian paparazzi of the fifties, he 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 made his bones in effect by shooting people involved in a notorious murder case, an unsolved murder case of a girl found up, washed up on a beach, and he stood in front of cars to get picked pictures of suspects you know he was you know these guys were kind of fearless this is not someone going past you know a starbucks in malibu getting a picture of and nobody uh, whacked him no no uh, you wow. know it was uh it, it, they didn't know what to make of this no one had ever seen photographers behave in this fashion <laughs> and uh you know that that was a different time well when when can we see this book this book will be out in october it's called dolce vita confidential and uh, it's being published by ww norton uh-huh. so uh there should be quite a hullabaloo around uh autumn that's great <laughs> that's great um was there a hullabaloo around the a lot of hullabaloo around the de niro book you in know, a different way yeah the de niro book um you know it's funny uh I'm drawn to subjects because there's some cultural interest in it for me. And then inevitably, inevitably, if I wrote a book about you, if I wrote a a true autobiography about myself, there would be things in it that would attract certain types of media attention. Stories of financial goings-on, of sexual goings-on, of losing one's temper. Mm-hmm. So the hullabaloo that surrounded De Niro all was of that sort. Really? I wrote, I think they published it large, but uh-huh. it was about 180,000 words. Yeah. And perhaps 4,000 of those words were to do with girlfriends, yeah. the death of John Belushi. De Niro was one of the last people to see him yeah. alive. Um, a couple of lawsuits that he was involved in. But when the media gets their copy of the book, right. that's what they report. Right. And then they right. turn to me and say, you've written a book about this? And I'm like, no, mate, <laughs> you're writing an article about this. Yeah. You're ignoring 176,000 words <laughs> and concentrating on this sliver. Yeah. And you know, to write about De Niro, I could have written a really ugly portrait of him. But really? that, wouldn't, that wasn't why I wanted to write about him, because right. he had a long bachelor life. And many, many partners in that time. It just didn't interest me. What interested me is De Niro the artist. So that's what I wrote about. I didn't care about any any of that stuff. You know, 
but I inhaled every movie that you described him in. Yeah, Maybe. yeah. That's that's, that's the, the point thing. of interest. Yeah, right. That's why you right. write about the person because yeah. they're an artist, not yeah. because yeah. you know. If I wanted yeah. to write about someone who was a jerk with women, I wouldn't have to do the research. I could just right. walk out the door <laughs> yes. and stop the first guy who walks past. <laughs> you know, it's just it's just not the done thing. When I wrote about Paul Newman, it was a similar phenomenon. Uh-huh. And I literally had the experience of saying to someone one night, you know, I've written kind of a square book about Newman, uh-huh. but he's recently dead. And I think this is the kind of thing that people want to read about him. Uh-huh. And literally the very next morning, page six in the New York Post blows out, shocking new book contains <laughs> allegations. Of, and most of the things that they cited had originally appeared in the pages of the New York Post. <laughs> So, you know, it's like Nietzsche saying the historians dig up what they've buried, you know, so, so do the, the, the gossip columnists. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's hilarious. So that's, the, that's the, the, the raucous noise that gets made around publication. I've learned to steel myself against it, embrace uh-huh. myself. Uh-huh. Um, that nude picture of Sophia Loren is going to go around the world, yes. I can tell you what. <laughs> but God bless her, you know, she should take some pride in that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, that'll be uh, that'll be online uh, immediately. Yeah, yeah, I would hope. That'll be the first thing scanned and put up. Yes. You know, it's it, 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 it's an incredible thing, and and um, yes, they were. Yeah, yeah, she 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 was a great talent. Um, yeah, you see, her, I, I write about the films she made with Marcello Mastroianni when she uh-huh. was about twenty. Uh-huh. He was about twenty six, yeah. and she plays a no good girl who's like duping some innocent cab driver, played by Mastroianni. And you can't take your eyes off her. Here's yeah. Marcello Mastriano, Vittoria De Sica, Paolo Stoppa, some of the greatest actors in all of Italy. Yeah. And there's this raw girl. Yeah. And she yeah. just lights the room up. And yeah. when she goes yeah. off camera, you're like, what, what, where, where did the movie go? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she, did, she wasn't quite an act, a born actor. She had to learn acting. Mm-hmm. But boy, she was, uh, she was an incredible presence. Yeah. You, you have become the king of writing great thorough biographies of people that you don't talk to well you could say the same thing about that guy who writes about john adams and, and yeah. well, abe lincoln I, I, you know point taken but <laughs> my first biography i talked to the guy for about six hours uh jerry lewis and, yes. you know kind of kind of lost the the flavor for it after that did he really throw you out he threw me out off a boat not into the water but it was clear that i had to go <laughs> Um, Did he say, get the fuck out? No, he screamed and yelled until he kind of lost his breath. And then he grabbed my (laughs) tape, my cassette tape. That's how long ago this was, out of the recorder. And it was pretty clear that the interview had ended for the day. (laughs) Um, You know, if you choose your subject based on what materials there are in the world, you don't need to talk to them. Uh Uh-huh. Paul Newman was was frail and dying when I wrote about him, although I did not know about that when I when I chose to do him. Uh-huh. I just saw the books that had been written about him and saw that there was, there they weren't good. There there was a hole on the bookshelf uh-huh. where Paul Newman, the, the definitive Paul Newman book should have been. Uh-huh. With De Niro, I selected De Niro knowing he would never talk to me. Uh-huh because he had donated his production and research archives to the University of Texas. Mm -hmm. And I knew I could go there Ah. and I would have access to, I mean, I I looked at notes that he took as a student actor all the way up through about 2006 um, for everything he did. 
including projects that he abandoned. Um, he was going to star as Ahab and, and produce a film um, with a script by William Kennedy wow. about uh, Ahab. Um, asked Steven Spielberg to direct it. Uh -huh. So for every picture De Niro did, I had his script, I had his research materials, I had his questions for the director. In some cases, I had transcripts of conversations between himself and the director or himself and the person who he was playing or someone who, in that business. Yeah, yeah. And there was more than enough in there to write a certain type of book, a book about a working actor. Uh -huh. um, you know, uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin never talks to Lincoln. She's written probably five well, books about true. him. Yes. <laughs> you know, true. you right. treat these people as historical subjects, right. which right. I think they are. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and did, uh, interviews are often useless because it's a game of chess between yourself and the subject. They're, they have a purpose. You have a purpose. You're yeah. trying to get them to say something. They're trying to avoid saying certain things. Uh -huh. um, uh, if you sit down with the 79-year-old Paul Newman, is he going to remember the name of his childhood maid? Probably um, not. Although, although, given how our, our, our minds are built, perhaps. that's probably he would, that's right. he would remember. But, you know, working on Newman, I found a 1951, 100-page interview that had never been looked at by one of his biographers. Huh. Somebody went, uh, he was appearing in Broadway in the original production of Sweet Bird of Youth. Mm -hmm. And somebody uh, did an oral history project at Columbia University and interviewed all the actors, directors, stagehands, lighting people, everybody on Broadway. And they had a 100-page Q&A with Newman that no one had ever seen. And I trust his memories of, in 1959 of his early acting experiences more than if I'd spoken to him in 2004 yeah, yeah, and yeah. gotten the same questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd had, I, I did a piece on a guy one time who... Um, worked with Alzheimer's patients and, and he said they may not know the names of their children but they know the words to won't you come home Bill Bailey <laughs> you know? well their children's names don't rhyme well <laughs> <it's> true <laughs> this is why poetry rhymes you can remember yeah. it without writing it down <laughs> that was the music they could sing the tune yeah so about that um, so did you find out something that 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 really shocked you or surprised you uh, in working on this new book? You know, uh, I knew going in, I mean, I'd, I'd nurtured this project for 15 or 20 years. I'd really? been gathering string and wow. proposed it once and got rejected, proposed it again and got rejected. And now that I can work at a certain pace because I don't have a day job, yeah. I said to my agent, I can do this book fast. So if we can get a, a low price, mm -hmm. I can do it. I can turn it around. Yeah. And so I wasn't surprised per se because I knew what I was getting into it was this nexus of uh -huh. post-war fashion and the birth of Italian fashion as an international business. Yeah. Um, post-war cinema um, of three different flavors, the neorealist, uh -huh. the Hollywood on the Tiber, the great epic films that Hollywood made at Cinecittà in the 50s, uh -huh. Quo Vadis, Ulysses, um, Ben-Hur, Cleopatra, yeah. and then um, the things that spun out of both of those. So out of the neorealist school, you get Antonioni, Fellini, Pasolini, yeah. and out of the sword and sandal movies, you get the cheap Italian Hercules movies and, and all those which wound up giving their first films to people like Sergio Leone, Mario Bava, mm -hmm. Lucio Fulci. Mm -hmm. So I had the f cinema, I had the fashion, I knew that the paparazzi and the tabloid media were developing. 
what was amazing to me was to see how tiny a world this was and how big the ripple effect was. Yeah. As I said, I'm, uh, 20 photographers took all these images. Amazing. And some of these images, are, 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 you know, at their, in their day were world-shaking. Sh um, you know, the images of, of Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor kissing on a boat in Ischia yeah. during the production of Cleopatra yeah. literally appeared in newspapers all over the world. <laughs> Marcello Geppetti was one of the first photographers to use an SLR camera with a detachable telephoto lens. Wow. And that's why that <laughs> happened. So, you know, when you start putting tiny things together yeah, and you say, yeah. oh, my God, this was, this was a packet of sugar and a little cup of espresso and it made boom, yeah, you know, yeah. Starbucks. Did you, get the, did, you, did you make many trips to Italy? I made one. Oh, I stayed yeah. for three weeks. Um, yeah. They made me eat the food. It was terrible. Oh, the, the <laughs> tortures of the damned. Um, but, you know, I got to use archives, the National Film Archives, both the yeah. library and yeah. the actual, you know, film stills uh -huh. and clippings. Uh -huh. um, I got to use the National Library. I went to Cinecittà. Uh -huh. There was an exhibition of Italian post-war fashion on it, a one art museum. I went to the archives of the Fontana sisters mm -hmm. who were, you know, one of the first uh, couture houses after the war in Italy. Mm -hmm. So, in th and then I, I just shopped. I shopped for books. I shopped for music and films. Um, so in, in one long trip, I, I, I came home with an extra suitcase. Yeah. I bought a suitcase there wow. to fill with stuff. Yeah. Um, and I threw away whole subjects that I, I didn't I wanted to write a shorter book than I've been writing because um, I wanted this book to be punchy and tight and yeah I'm still in the copy editing phase working on tightening it yeah so if I'd made more trips I would have just had more material that right. I would have thrown out yeah. and yeah. I'd, I'd be working out twice as hard to get rid of all the gelati how's your Italian pretty good I hadn't yeah. spoken or read Italian much in 30 years and and uh once I was there a day or two, my reading was very good, and I found myself saying things to people casually that idiomatic <laughs> expressions, non me fa un baffo. It doesn't give me a whisker. You know, it's like no skin off my teeth. Right. Or, um, skin off my nose. Or, you know, questo non le salta neanche un cavallo. Yeah. Not even a horse could jump over that. <laughs> you know, so these things just came out of me. Yeah, and, yeah, And, yeah. you know, mainly I, I lacked vocabulary. Uh, but Italy uh -huh. is one of those nations where they have a, a, a language only spoken there, so they're so grateful if an yeah. international traveler even has a little of their language uh -huh. that, uh -huh. you know, I was able, I bargained for a suit in the Porta Portese flea market, yeah. a, a green corduroy vintage suit All that right. fit me like it was made for me, and the guy <laughs> wanted 120 euros, and I offered him 60, and we settled on 75, and I'm sure he <laughs> thought he got me, but I feel like I got him. So, Well, what you got was the suit of a lifetime. Yeah, 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 for only about 90 bucks, not so bad. Yeah, but. yeah, yeah. Who taught you Italian? I learned it in graduate school. It was, really? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I grew up in an Italian-American and Jewish household in yeah. New York, but my mom's family are the Italians, so... Yeah. I knew words for food and swear words yes. and, you know, <laughs> words for, like, people who talk too much or people who don't bathe, right. you know, like the sort of household <laughs> yes. slang. Um, and uh, after college, I spent uh, what's now called a gap year. Um, before I uh, went to graduate school, I, I hitchhiked around Europe and lived in Spain. Mm -hmm 
because I'd studied Spanish. Yeah. Um, and I found it very easy. This is 1982, 83, to get jobs teaching English in uh -huh. Spain. Yeah. And I thought, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to graduate school, get my MFA in poetry, uh -huh. learn Italian, yeah. and then move to Italy and never come back. There you go. And literally the first class of the first day of my first term, my first year of graduate school, I saw a girl across the room and here I am. Um, I, I didn't get back to Italy for 30 years, wow. um, but I did take two years of Italian in graduate school and, uh -huh. and kept it up with yeah. Yeah. movies and reading poetry and you know the occasional novel. Um, I, I'm a big soccer fan, so uh, when I'm in New York, you can get the Daily Gazzetto dello Sport, mm -hmm. the pink Italian daily sports page. Mm -hmm. They have in New York on now on the day of publication. So wow. uh, on my annual or semi-annual trips to New York, I would always grab uh, some Italian newspapers to read. Yeah. So I kept yeah. it up, but yeah. I was impressed that, that so much of it just came, f once I was surrounded by it, it just came flooding back. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah, great. yeah. My father's side is Italian, uh, but I grew up in a totally Jewish neighborhood. And so, I, you know, uh, I, I, you know, my 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 vocabulary was mixed of, of mixed up with of, of Italian and, and 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 Yiddish. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, you know, uh, epithets basically. Right, right. Swear and, words yeah, and you know, yeah. and, schmutz and. And then when I moved here, neither is is, is no. <laughs> lingua franca. No, and you know, South South Portland was the Jewish and Italian yeah, neighborhood. I, and I live in the Southwest, and there are uh -huh. traces of it there. There's still a couple of old spaghetti joints, yeah. and yeah, um, yeah. you know that's still where the Jewish community is very heavily represented. Right. But that would have been quite a quite a familiar heyday for me. Yeah, to live it was, in that. It was a shock. I, I all of a sudden I had to stop using all the Jewish idiom. Yeah, just had to stop because people didn't know what the fuck I was saying, right? And that, and I had to, and I had to, to cut in half my my speaking volume. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> they wanted me to stop using my horn, but I have not yet learned to learn stop using my the horn on my car. Well, I I, <laughs> I have an alternative. I'm going to get tattooed on my hand. Yeah. You dumb fuck. <laughs> uh, one in reverse for the guy in front of me to read in his mirror, and one in, in straightforward print. And um, it, it's as traffic in Portland has increased over the last couple of years. Oh yeah. I think that the native. I I was married to a fifth generation Oregonian. My children are sixth generation. Oregonians. Yeah. And it was a long and difficult uh, 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 household. So I feel entitled to talk shit about Oregonians. Yes. <laughs> and um, I have many, mostly, the preponderance of things I have to say are positive, but they are not born drivers. And I think it's a genetic memory. The people who got here on the Oregon Trail put the wheels of the ox cart in the ruts in Missouri and just sat there. They didn't have to make a decision. And faced with decisions, Portland drivers just simply throw up their hands. They don't know what to do. And the increase in traffic and, and population has meant to uh, led to an increase in decisions. So they've actually gotten worse over the last few years. And I, I, was, I love Portland. I, I am a staunch port Portlander, I, I, tediously so, to outsiders. But on this point, I will not budge. Y'all can't drive. Not too long after I moved here, I was working for, for uh, Oregon Artbeat and I had to go to someplace south of Eugene to interview, to, to, to shoot a story. And I had to introduce myself to the musician's manager. And I told him my name. And he looked straight, looked me straight in the eye without a touch of irony or anything else and said, that French? 
<laughs> and I looked at him and I said, oh, I thought to myself, well, I'm going to play this one. I looked at him dead in the eyes. That's Italian. And he thought I was going to kill him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It worked. <laughs> I, you know, it, 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 I, I wrote a piece for the Oregonian, I don't know, about 20 years ago now yeah. that was looking for the, the red checker cloth uh, red checkerboard tablecloth Italian joints yeah. still in town. Yeah. And there were a handful. Right. And they were not very good, but, you know, yeah. I ate in all of them because yeah. I was looking for... Brajol. Yeah, brajol or, you know, <laughs> something something homey. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it's 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 something I miss. I, I go back yeah. east, and that's what I want to eat in New York. Right. And my cousins are like, you know, Italian food again. I was like, for you. <laughs> you know, that's like you come to my house where salmon is cheaper than hamburger <laughs> half the year. You know, and you want to eat salmon. Yeah. So it's... it's, it's uh, do, do, you, do you miss writing, you know, daily for, you know, uh, reviews and stuff? I know you're, you're doing stuff for KGW, but... Yeah, that's, that's periodic. Um, yeah. uh, I... I I'm. I did it for a long time. I, yeah. Twenty years of reviewing at the Oregonian, and uh, finished in 2012. Yeah. Um, and um, metabolically, newspapering suits me. Um, I can I turn stuff around. Yep. I like writing on those deadlines. Absolutely. You know, I was. Yep. Uh, it taught me a type of discipline as a writer that I was able to translate into books. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I was able to say, well, if I could write two reviews a day, as I did a million times, yeah. that's a thousand words. If I write a thousand words a day, it'll take six months to write 180,000 words. Right. You know, seven months. Give me some time off. Yeah. Well, that's that's a book. That's a long book. Yeah. yeah. Um, you, you're still writing as much as as you did before, or? No, no, no. I okay. mean, I was working at a daily newspaper, writing yeah. six to twelve pieces a week. Yeah. Um, and writing books. I mean, you know, uh, my first book came out in 96. This is my eighth. Yeah. So now I just write books. Um, I'm on KGW two or three weeks a month, Uh and I write one script for each of those appearances that's 250 words. Um, That was (laughs) half of one piece in the Oregonian. Yeah. Yeah. So... um, even if I take into account all my tweets, I'm not, I'm not, uh, <laughs> I'm not posting as much as you know I did back then. So, yeah. Um, yeah. so do you miss it? I don't miss the grind. Yeah. Um, I don't miss watching so many lousy movies. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I'd see 300 movies a year and have a hard time coming up with a 10 best list. You know, yeah. because art yeah. should be hard and best should mean something. Yeah. Um, and uh, unfortunately, the last decade of my newspaper business experience coincided with the decline of the newspaper business. Yeah. So I have a lot of mixed uh, memories yeah. of decision making and yeah. watching your friends leave. You know, uh, yeah, axes falling, and yeah. and you know, so so that. Uh, uh, that that's very hard to take. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to look past that, you know, and I have to also remember, and I, I, I'm I'm always clear about this. What I did at the Oregonian was a luxury. Yeah. It was a luxury in my life. It was the luxury in the life of a newspaper. Yep. But newspapers, to me, are as important as clean water, and you know, having firemen and police, the fourth estate after the king, the military, and the church, the First Amendment before guns, 
um, protecting the free press. Yep. This is this is a civic necessity mm -hmm. to have an independent watchdog. Yes, it has a political point of view. Everyone who wakes up in the morning has a political point of view. But the fact is, newspapers among public institutions are the only one that publishes a record of its mistakes as quickly as they get pointed out to them, right? The errors, yeah. you know, in the yeah. newspaper, whether it's a misspelling of a name right. or a big whopper like the right. Jason Blair case at the uh, New yeah. York Times. You can't imagine the government doing something like that, invest, hiring outside people to investigate itself and then giving them you know, the space of an entire issue to, to account for what had gone wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah. People being dismissed from their positions that yeah. they took 40 years to get before the accounting was even, you know, rendered. Um, yeah. the, you know, there's, there's barely a, a public issue where newspapering, good newspapering journalism doesn't improve the common wheel. And we've lost that. And I'm sorry, but social media, which I'm addicted to, does not replace that. No, Twitter doesn't break a story. No. Twitter lets people know a story is happening. Correct. You know, newspapers. Right. And it could be on Alternative Weekly. You know, uh -huh. I don't take it away from the hard work done by, you know, reporters at places like Willamette Week and the Mercury. They, they have a function, you know, just as much as the daily paper. And... We're losing that, and I think you know. If I was, if I was a corporate fat cat, if I was a lazy or corrupt politician, I would be delighting in the demise of newspapers. Absolutely. It's one less right. set of eyes on me, right. one less set yeah. of uh, people to whom I'm accountable. So I, 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 I mourn the loss of of newspapermen. Not not oh, not yeah. my own gig, right. but the the culture of it. I know. I, when I when I moved to Portland in '97 and started writing for the Living Section, I thought I died and went to heaven. The living section in 1997 was amazing. It yeah, was a great had, section. It was a robust newspaper. I mean, it really was. I think about that that A and E team that I wrote yeah. for. You know, yeah. Barry Johnson, Bob Hicks, sure. Marty Hughley, right. D K Rowe, mm -hmm. Randy Gregg, myself, David Stabler, mm -hmm. Jeff Baker on books. I mean, you know, we uh, and we had freelancers. You know, I had three regular freelancers mm -hmm. as the film critic. Um, they were always very stingy about hiring staff because mm -hmm. they gave us, they paid us well and the benefits were just like yeah. you know we had better better benefits than members right. of congress right. um so i got that i you yeah. know i understood yeah. that they couldn't hire what they needed but that was great yeah. because i I, meant, I i almost never got turned down for a freelance piece you know and, and i wrote and, hundreds of them and and you know as a freelancer to have a a, a hungry beast oh, looking yeah. for material seven yeah. days a week Absolutely. what you know what could be better right Right. I mean, when, yeah, I, when yeah. I was a freelancer, I was writing more for the paper than than you know the, the a lot of people on staff. Yeah. Um, and yeah. you know, I'd say you guys don't write about you know uh, video games. Yeah. And I wasn't a huge gamer, but right. you know, I could write once a month a roundup, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. and they took that from me. I mean, it was it was just an amazing time. And the Sunday living section. I wrote a, I wrote a, 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 a 2,500 word piece on an all night bingo parlor one time. Mm -hmm. It was three pages in the Sunday Living Yeah, section. yeah, yeah. I mean, with with great art because yeah, they they yeah. had great photographers yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, the one thing that has improved in the Oregonians since since they started hacking away at it was they finally got the color photos right. <laughs> Um, ironically, um, yeah, yeah really. they, they don't have a dark room anymore. I guess no newspaper does, but you know, most of the longtime photographers yeah. are gone. It's a, it's a shame. I, I can't, I, it's, it's very hard for me to look at it. 
Yeah, yeah. I, yeah I, it's, I, like, it's like going for a drink of water in Flint. Yeah, I, I, when they announced that they were selling off the press, yeah. the building on, on 18th, that's, yeah. I, I, I canceled my subscription. It was yeah. like, well, yeah. the old adage, you can't, uh, don't get into an argument with a guy who buys ink by the barrel. Well, yeah. the Oregonian doesn't buy ink by the barrel anymore. And right. whatever it is, namaste, go with God, but go. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. I can't, I can't travel with you anymore, friend. Yes, it's a shame. It is a shame. It's yeah. more than a shame. I think it's a tort against the citizenship. It's, it's one of the reasons I started Oregon Music News. Because you know, after the crash, I couldn't, couldn't even get freelance pieces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and and uh, uh, it was like, okay, well, where is this coverage going to come from? First of all, it's it, it, it's 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 bad for for uh, journalists. And it's bad for the public. Yeah, yeah. You know? And <laughs> that's why Oregon Music News, for good or evil, has always been probably evil. <laughs> I mean, probably is, is, I, I, I'm, at this point, after seven years, I'm not sure it helped us, being an all-genre music magazine, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and trying to fill that void, you know, uh, that wasn't being filled, and I don't know. No, it's a shame. That's, and, but that's and, my know, story. It's, it's, easy to see, it's easier for me to see how someone fills the, the hole in music coverage or yes. arts coverage, right. Oregon Arts Watch, Barry yeah. Johnson, my former yeah. editor. Is, yeah. They do great job on theater, dance, fine art, you know, painting and such. Right. Um, but how do, you, how do you cover the police bureau as an independent you don't. without a, a newspaper backing you up? Yeah. Yeah. You know, you worked for the Oregonian. You had lawyers on staff. Sure. If you couldn't get a public record, you could go to the lawyers and yeah. say, I can't do this. And they would work with you on it. Yeah. You can't do that as a private citizen, right. even w- yeah. a private citizen with a robust blog. Right. That's why I was so happy when um, Jack Berry started writing for us because he was, he was, you know, he was, he was, he was the movie critic, the, the, the music critic. He was, you know, at, at, at the Oregonian in, in, in the old days, long before you you were here and I was here. And um, uh, and, and and he, but he had he had been a police reporter. Yeah. You know, and he knew all that stuff. And and I remember, I'll never forget. He sent me his first piece on the band Oregon, and I just sat there, just read it, and sat back and went. This is why the fuck I started this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Oh, when, when I was uh, starting to write books on, on uh, certain subjects, um, yeah. I didn't know how to do certain... Uh, I didn't know how certain procedures worked. Freedom yeah. of Information Act requests, uh, appeals of Freedom of Information Act requests. Yeah. I went down to the investigative team on the newspaper and mm-hmm. said, okay, here's a letter I got from... Uh, the FBI, what do I do with this? And yeah. they're like, oh, well, here's this form. And they printed something up for me. And, right. you know, the next thing I hear from the FBI is a box of papers yeah. on the subject I was writing yeah. about, you know. Where are, you know, there's no, there's no place to go here now. No. For, for writers, and, right? Let's talk about Portland, all over, all over the country. But yeah. here in Portland, we're, they don't know that. They didn't no, know where no, to go. No. Well, there was that wonderful moment in the in the last season of The Wire that focused on yeah. the newsroom. Oh God, yeah, when, I know. Um, I knew half those guys. <laughs> yeah, and the guy Prop Joe, one of the yeah. main kingpins of the drug scene, yeah. dies. Yes, and they wind up doing like a two-inch story about yeah. a, an appliance repairman killed in his <laughs> shop, because the guys who would have known who that was We're had gone. all been let go. Yes. And that happens, I think, every day in newsrooms yeah. all across the country and yeah. for sure here. It's yeah. a, 
it, something, something has died in our culture with the death of newspapers, and it's not some, it's not unimportant. It's not a, it's, it, it's not the appendix. It's, it's a, it's a vital organ. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, shit. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and I don't, I don't feel like an old, old crank saying no. this. I think, I think, no. I think it's, I think you know, you should know that it's, it's like a. Uh, they talk about grocery deserts, and, and um, I work for a charity that tries to build soccer fields in what we call recreation deserts. Mm-hmm. If you live in a news desert, as we increasingly do, yeah. your health and well-being are at risk. Ask the people in Flint. Absolutely. Ask the people who live by this this uh, this glass factory oh, in yeah. southeast Portland where yeah. they're putting frickin' cyanide or whatever it is in, in the, the air. air. Yeah. Yeah. It took a newspaper to come along and say, this is happening. Right. Yeah, Bullseye was always the good guys, though. You know, you know, before this happened, I mean, they were all, <coughs> well, you know. <coughs> I don't know who broke that story, but yeah, you know, you yeah. depend on newspapers to right. to find this stuff out because these people aren't going to self-report. <sighs> oh, shit. So, what have you seen that you liked lately? What have I seen that I've liked? Um, Coen Brothers. Uh, I, I did like the Coen Brothers movie, but I admit that it's one of their more particular ones. Um, in ways, it's a sequel to Barton Fink, which was also set at Capitol Pictures, yes. the fictitious movie perhaps, studio. Perhaps my favorite. <laughs> I quote Barton Fink all the time, yes. and, and um, <laughs> the, it, ha- it contains much of the wisdom you need to get by in this life. I was covering, I was covering a, a Death with Dignity convention in Boston, and it was in an old hotel. And I go up, I get to the to the to the, the, the hallway. Right, I look down the hallway and I'll, oh, this looks familiar, right? And I open it was a big door. I unlock it, I open the door, and there was a box on the bed. Oh, jeez. <laughs> of course, it was all the greed and all, 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 the, all the PR yeah. stuff. But I'm going like, Jesus, yeah, Barton Fink, uh, Judy Davis's head. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <clears throat> There's a hotel that I stay in in New York called the Jane. It's on uh-huh. Jane Street on the on the Hudson River, uh-huh. and it is it is. Frankly designed after the Hotel Earl and Barton Fink. You get walk in there and there's a bellboy with a pillbox hat and the the hotel slogan is a, a day or a lifetime. And the walls and the wallpaper of the corridors are designed exactly like the Hotel Earl on purpose. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's an amazing hotel because your room is basically like a steamship room. It was a hotel for sailors. Oh. It was owned by like some sailors, uh, uh-huh. you know, sort of like the Salvation Army for sailors, yeah. like the yeah. YMCA. And uh, I have stayed there twice now, and I can touch all four walls at once <laughs> in my room. The bathrooms, showers, and stuff are down the hall. They're uh-huh. immaculate, yeah. spacious. Are there mosquitoes and peeling, peeling wallpaper? No, no, no. Thank God. Um, I did come away with some bed bug bites this last oh, trip. But it's 150 bucks a night, including tax and fees, which in New York City is That's a bargain. Free. You can't get an Airbnb for that right. price. Can't get a cab for that price. Yeah, so... Um, <laughs> The Hotel Jane, if you, if you find great. yourself on business right. in New York. So, so this, this new Coen Brothers is, is, is... You know, it's obscure. It's, yeah. it's, there's a lot of in-in jokes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't know that it's a crowd pleaser, you know, in the way they're occasionally... But that doesn't bother me. Um, no, Barton Fink was not a crowd pleaser. No. <laughs> um, and uh, I saw Deadpool, which is the uh-huh. sort of... Uh, the, the, the wink at the... Wink at the audience, Marvel Comics uh, superhero movie that opens um, what, uh, next, uh, this, this coming week, I believe. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's got jokes in it like um, 
the guy turns to the camera, he's telling us a story, there's a story within that story, and in that story he turns to the camera, he says, whoa, a fourth wall break inside a fourth wall break. That's like 16 walls. You know, and that's, that's, that's for a certain audience. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I don't see as many movies as I used to. You yeah. know, as I started to say, I, I, I see, used to see 300 new movies a year, yeah. and in 2015 I probably saw... 40, 50. Yeah. Um, and most of those toward the end of the year, because I'm on KGW, I'm a member of the Broadcast Film Critics Association, and yeah. I get sent screeners of all the Oscar season films yeah. starting around Columbus Day or so. Uh-huh. FedEx and, and UPS are at my house uh-huh. virtually every day, uh-huh. and that's when I catch up on stuff. Well, Chris Rock's monologue should be pretty good this year, you don't know, you think? <laughs> getting, I, I, I hear people say that I hear the argument that Oscar needs more diversity, but, you know, how about, you know, for for one element of diversity, good. Good <laughs> good would be a start. Um, you know, uh, to get upset about the Oscars is like getting upset about a, a class election in high school. Yeah. I can see the point, yeah. but I still think you're, you're, you're addressing a, a symptom rather than the disease. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I, I uh, like the MLS soccer draft of college talent, I, uh-huh. I judge my friends based on how seriously they take the Oscars, and it's an inverse <laughs> ratio. I like you better the less seriously you take it. So, yes, rail against that if you wish, but don't be surprised if when you come to, I'm no longer sitting beside you. <laughs> Are you going to watch it? I, I'll watch it. You know, it's probably the only thing on TV that night anyhow. You Billions know, and, is on, though. Um, well, you know. Um, have you seen Billions? I, I know, because it's on one of those pay channels. Oh, so my I, God, I don't it's get fabulous. It. Yeah. Oh, Giamatti's the best thing I've ever seen Giamatti in. Yeah, he's, he's, yeah. he's good fun. And, and yeah. you know, this, see there, there. This guy, he's gonna, he's, if he lives to be 100 and makes five movies a year, he may never, you know, he's been nominated once for yeah. an Oscar. Right. May never get it, or twice, I guess, uh, yeah. Sideways and Cinderella Man. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you can't tell me he's, he's not one of the best at what he does, but because he doesn't fit one of their ideals, yeah. he's never going to be an Oscar hero. Right. And does that that tells me more about Oscar than who gets nominated and who doesn't. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. it's such a specific thing that you know it's uh, Black Lives Matter, Black Oscars, not so much. Right, right. Still, Chris Rock should be pretty good. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he's funny anyhow. I mean, you know, he he he. Uh, really, I mean, he's got the license to say whatever the fuck he wants this time. You know, and Eddie Murphy, I remember, you know, saying, well, we get we get about one a decade, so we're due. He was presenting an award, and, you know. Um, yeah, that, that's absolutely true, you yeah. know, that, that whole populations aren't represented by this prize, yeah. but also not represented by it is artistic quality. Yes. So, you know, where, where, where are we going to start throwing tomatoes? I mean, because there aren't enough tomatoes yeah. to throw at that. So what's the best thing you've seen? Uh, what, what was your number one for 2015? Mm, you know, 2015 was a funny year. There were things that I, I liked really well that um, a number of them that, you know, uh, so Brooklyn I liked quite well. Um, there was a series of one-name movies that I'm not going to be able to remember now. Sorry. Um, 
but uh, Bro Brooklyn is the one that when it was yeah. over one of the few films I saw last year that's I th I've had this sensation if you let me just freshen up and show it again <laughs> I'll watch it again it's short yeah. it's simple Spotlight was another uh -huh. um, which I think is still you know in the running for best picture mm -hmm. um just just a quality film also about newspapering also about the civic mm -hmm. the civic value of newspaper of shoe leather reporting there was two scenes in that movie that brought me to tears one was a montage of research oh, being done wow. clippings and microfilm yeah. Yeah. and yeah. all this and the other was a scene where uh, an elderly woman who you know still had her faith in the catholic church is reading the newspaper and says to her niece, who's reported the story, her line is, honey, can you get me a glass of water? Uh -huh. While she's reading this, she's so shaken up. And I was so touched by yeah, yeah. the emotion, but also the, 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 the delicacy with which the scene was played and mounted. Uh -huh. um, uh -huh. So those two, you know, and they, they share certain things. Uh, they're both set in the past. I thought Carol was very good, Todd Haynes' film of the Patricia Highsmith novel, The Price mm -hmm. of Salt. Mm -hmm. um, probably my favorite movie just in terms of Yaya's last year was the Mad Max, yeah. the fourth Mad Max, which, you know, was a great 3D movie, a great yeah. action movie, a great yeah. feminist movie. Uh -huh. So uh -huh. so why not? Why not? There's, there's four. Yeah. I, did, I noticed you didn't mention Star Wars. <laughs> I, li I liked it okay. I had no beef with it, yeah. you know. Um, <laughs> But no beef with it is, is hardly a standard. Hardly, yeah, really. <laughs> well, listen, hey, thanks a lot for stopping by. It's nice to see you. Oh, Always nice, nice to see, see you. And, and, and a pleasure uh, to talk to you. Uh, you know, good luck with the book. Thank you. Dolce Vita Confidential. Yeah. It started as a working title and then, you know, time passed and my editor, my agent and I, we were like, is there any reason not to keep using it? All right. All right. So, We'll, we'll be looking for the, the picture of Sophia Loren. Everyone will. <laughs> Everyone will. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Okay.